Good afternoon. It's good to see everyone. If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn back to Isaiah 31, which is what Keith read for us earlier. Our text today will be the fifth woe in this series of six, uh, and it stretches from chapter 31 through chapter 32. I encourage you to have a Bible open to look at these verses, because as has been the case, uh, we kind of are flying over them a little bit, um, and there's some details that if you have your, your Bibles open in front of you, hopefully you'll be able to see some of the things that you would miss <clears throat> otherwise. Also, kids, today we talked about, if you were in our Sunday school class on Zoom, we spoke about regeneration, repentance, and faith. And I think you'll find that those are all over this passage. So pay attention to those things if you uh, were in that class today. Knowing the... Knowing the right thing to do and doing it are two very different things. So knowing the, the right things to eat, it's really not rocket science, right? But eating the right things, that's not always what we do. Uh, knowing that I need to do the dishes each night and then actually doing them are two very different things. Knowing that you were supposed to buy a Valentine's Day gift and, and actually doing it are two very different things. Uh, I'm sure you can come up with your own illustrations of things that you know you should do, but that you then fail to do. The, the wider message of the book of Isaiah it, about how God's people are to respond to his vision is very clear. The right thing to do for God's people is to trust the Lord, to repent of sin, and to listen to God's word. And this is, in fact, the message not only of Isaiah, but also the message continually spoken by the prophets, spoken by the Gospels, spoken by Paul. It's, it's the message of the Bible, to trust the Lord, to turn from sin, and to walk in obedience to God's word. Jesus begins his ministry by calling all people to repent and believe, as does John the Baptist. We know that, that this is the way of blessing. We know that living in dependence on the Father through faith and turning from our sin and obeying the Lord's commands brings flourishing into our lives. But knowing and doing are two very different things. So, so what might help us to do what God is calling us to do? To walk down the path of blessing that's marked by faith, repentance, and obedience. Well, maybe, uh, maybe a clear vision of who God is and a clear vision of who the, the false refuges in our life are. Maybe that would help. Maybe a clear picture of how God is working in the present and also of what's coming in the future. Maybe that would help. Alec Motyer says of this chapter, it is part of the purpose of biblical eschatology, meaning that the Bible's description of what is to come in the future, part of the purpose of biblical eschatology is to allow the ultimate vision to brighten the immediate dark days. In other words, a, a clearer vision of eternity will help us see better in the present and lead us to greater faith, repentance, and obedience. But not only will seeing what God is going to do help us, but also understanding who he really is and also understanding what he is doing right now in the, in the present will help us. And so let's say it like this as we try to summarize the message. And I've put uh, the big idea and the points in your bulletin because they're all a little too long. 
And so if you need to reference those, you can. But here's our big idea for today. In the light of who God is, what he is doing, and what he will do, we can see the blessings of trust, repentance, and obedience. In the light of who God is, what he is doing, and what he will do, we can see the blessings of trust, repentance, and obedience. Maybe as we think about th- those things, you could, you could think about a light fixture with three bulbs in it. We've got one of those in our bathroom maybe. I think it might have four, but just think about a light fixture that has three light bulbs in it. One representing who God is, another representing what he is doing in the present, and another representing the sure promises of what he's going to do in the future. And if we can make sure that all three of those light bulbs are working, then by God's grace, we will be best enabled to trust the Lord more fully to freely repent of our sins and idolatry and to embrace the difficult but the blessed road of walking in obedience to God's word. Another way to say that, in light of who God is, what he is doing and what he will do, we can see the blessings of trust, repentance, and obedience. So my hope this afternoon is to try to put working light bulbs into each of those sockets Not so that we will simply have knowledge in our heads of who God is and what he is doing and what he will do, but so that the the clear light of his character and of his actions will spur us into lives of consistent trust in him, of consistent repentance towards him, and of consistent obedience to his word. Because living by faith, casting off sin, walking in God's ways brings the blessings that we long for. We know that, but sometimes it's hard to do it. So seeing who God is and what he is doing will help us. So first thing that we see is in Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 5, and it's that we are called to trust the Lord because, because of who he is. He is the all-powerful, the, the, he is the all-powerful sovereign Lord who gently protects his people. Trust the Lord. Why? Because of who he is. And who is he? He is the all-powerful sovereign Lord who gently protects his people. Now, the prophecy of Isaiah comes to God's people in the midst of a very real threat from an army that was seemingly unstoppable, the Assyrians. Some 20 years before Isaiah wrote this, the Assyrian army had laid siege to Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, laid siege. They, they cut off all their resources. And that lasted, that siege lasted three years and then eventually led to their capture and their scattering. And in light of that threat, the people of the southern kingdom, who Isaiah is writing to, the people of Judah and of Jerusalem, and their leaders in particular, are striving to figure out what to do to best protect themselves. In this section of Isaiah's vision, begun back in chapter 28, we know that King Hezekiah has taken over. He is the king in Judah. And while not a perfect king, we know that he was a good king. And yet even good kings can make big mistakes. And good kings often make mistakes out of the best of intentions. You see, the Lord's primary concern with what was going on in Judah and with Hezekiah at that time was an alliance that they had made with Egypt. Last week, you you remember, we read about these ambassadors that were sent on camels burdened with the riches of Judah to go down to the Egyptians and seek protection from them in the event of an Assyrian invasion. And while it seems obvious to us in this moment that that was a really terrible idea, I think it could be that Hezekiah was a little bit shocked to hear the words of Isaiah in chapter 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help 
and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. I think Hezekiah may have thought that what he was doing was what was best for his people that he was exhausting all of his political and kingly resources to assure the people of Judah that they would not face the same fate as their brothers and sisters in the north. That like the, the tunnel that he had dug to bring fresh water into the city in the event of a siege like Samaria had faced, so too going to Egypt was simply a strategic and a wise thing to do. But what we're told is that in his haste and his foolishness and his pride, he sought the help of Egypt without consulting the Lord, without listening to Isaiah's pleas to be firm in faith, without listening to the word of the Lord to Moses in Deuteronomy 17, 16, which is crystal clear. This is what it says about Israel's future kings. He must not cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did. Went to Egypt because they had many horses. What was the attraction of Egypt? Last week we considered how Egypt may represent all of the false refuges that our hearts are very easily drawn to. But we should also consider the fact that Egypt did appear to be very militarily strong. From the perspective of the ancient world, everyone saw the strength of Egypt. To have Egypt on your side was like having one of our current world superpowers on your side. Verse 3 speaks about the strong men and the horses of Egypt that, that Judah knew about. And I think that therein lies part of the reason why we fail to trust the Lord and choose to trust other things. Namely, because we can see them. So I don't see the angel armies around me, but I can see soldiers in Egypt. I can't see the strength of God's arm, but I can see the chariots and the horses of Egypt. I can't see God's storehouses of food and riches, but I can see my bank account. I can see my job. I can see the money that's being offered to me that will help me survive, even if it means compromising my values a little bit. I can see the power of our own nation, of our military, of our politicians. I can see the, the numbing effects of alcohol or drugs or entertainment and feel that they might help me. I can see the, the likes on my social media posts that affirm my ideas. I can see my spouse and my children and my friends and turn to them for support without ever turning to the Lord. I can see the science or the technology that I know will help me. Now, certainly God works through secondary means, through, through gifts of, of money or people or science or governments. But if I trust in these things without trusting in the Lord, if I rest my life on these things without consulting God in prayer and in submission to his word, then I am revealing where my real trust lies. To that end, David Jackman says this, when we start to make our choices from human perspective, Without consulting the Lord, we're left only with human resources to, to depend upon. Let me say that again. When we start to make our choices from human perspective without consulting the Lord, we're left only with human resources to depend upon. And the reality is that those human resources will ultimately fail us. 
So the, the fact that we can see the help of Egypt and of other refuges is why we so easily turn to them without consulting the Lord. But the fact that we can see these things is also why we should not ultimately trust them. Because the help we need is found in what we cannot see. The help we need is God, not man, and spirit, not flesh. The fight we fight is a fight of faith. And faith, Hebrews 11:1 says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen. Besides, can any earthly refuge that you know of provide the help and deliverance that the Lord provides? The, those images of verses 4 and 5 in chapter 31 are so great. It's, it's of the Lord as a, a lion guarding the prey that he has got and how the, the shepherds can, well, he'll never run away from those shepherds that come and try and make him flee. Or of a, a flock of birds that speaks of God's protection and his salvation for everyone who will trust in him. Uh, Alec Motyer says of these images that the first speaks of unperturbed sovereignty. I like that, unperturbed sovereignty. And the second of gentle protection. He is the lion and he is the lamb. No one can cause the Lord to turn away from his people when he comes to their aid any more than shepherds can distract a lion from its prey. And when God sets his eagle eye on us, he will certainly protect, deliver, spare, and rescue us. Now, with eyes of faith, we can see through the weaknesses of the resources our physical eyes see. And we can see the strength of the invisible refuge of our Father, who is the all-powerful sovereign Lord, who gently protects his people. And when we see who God is, we will turn to him first and we will seek his wisdom before putting our hope in any other refuge. So who or what are you trusting in simply because you can see it or because you can see them? I would encourage you that Isaiah tells us, trust in the Lord first. Trust in the Lord instead of these things we can see. Trust in God who is invisible, but who is the greatest refuge we could ever find. Trusting in the Lord alone carries with it the twin idea of repentance, of renouncing all other refuges. In our Sunday school class today, we talked about how repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. To trust in the Lord is to renounce all other refuges. And so we see in Isaiah 31, verses six, verse 6 through chapter 32, verse 8, this call to repent. Repent, turn, because of the certainty that God's enemies will be defeated and God's righteous king will be enthroned. Repent, because we know something. We know that God's enemies are going to be defeated and that God's righteous king is going to be enthroned. Now, one of the hard things about reading the prophets is that they go back and forth between their present day and the future. And some of their future is actually our present because of the coming of Jesus, and some of their future is also our future. And so it gets a little confusing sometimes. So just know that we're always kind of going back and forth, sometimes to their day, sometimes to our present day, and sometimes to the future. Verse 7 speaks of, of that day. It says that on that day... In that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. It probably refers to the yet-to-be-realized day of the Lord's return. And he says to us that in that day, we are going to repudiate and throw away every idol that we've ever had. 
And so the call is to now, in the present, throw them all away. If all of our false hopes will be forsaken in that day, then we should forsake them now, before the return of the Lord. Returning to to God is to return to the one who will fight for us and who will never fail us, even right now. Isaiah tells Judah in verses 8 and 9 how the Lord is going to defeat their enemies with his own invisible sword. And how in contrast to the Lord who is the rock, the rock of Assyria, their king, in verse 9, is going to pass away. And the reality of that promise is seen in chapters 36 through 37. We'll see that later. But like Judah, we can trust the Lord to defeat our present enemies, even if it's in the 11th hour, even if it's an unexpected and invisible way. We can trust that the Lord is fighting for us. From that present deliverance, we again look to Judah's future. We look forward to the coming reign of the righteous king, the messianic king who will reign in righteousness. Isaiah chapter 32 is filled with messianic pictures. Look with me at Isaiah 32, beginning in verse 1. I'll just read verses 1 through 8 for now. Isaiah says, Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. What beautiful pictures. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. These verses beautifully describe what it's like when God's righteous king is reigning over his people. It speaks of the kingdom that has broken into the world, in the coming of Jesus, and the kingdom that will come in fullness when he returns. We see that it's a kingdom of protection and provision in verse 2. It's a place where people are enabled to see and to hear and to understand and to speak what is right and true and good. This is our hope. This is our hope for the future, and it's our mission in the present as followers of Jesus who are submitting to this kingly rule of Jesus, that we as individuals and that we as a church would represent God's protection and provision for those in need, for the homeless and the hurting, the hungry and the jobless, for the exploited and the rejected, and for all people, that we would represent that love, and that we are also to be those who speak the truth and listen to the truth. We do this in a world that at present, according to verse 5, calls fools noble and scoundrels honorable. We live in a world, Isaiah says, that naturally exalts the worst of people. People who, according to verses 6 through 8, speak folly and who seek wickedness and who promote error. They plan out evil schemes and they neglect the poor and they lie to the needy. This is what our world is if we have eyes to see it. It's a place that calls the truth a lie. It's filled with leaders who will lie and cheat and steal to get ahead. Fools, all of them, 
Beware of trusting those that the world says are wise because we have a tendency to promote fools. But in that day, in the kingdom of Jesus, we're told in verse 8, that noble people plan noble things. No longer will fools and scoundrels be exalted in that day, but the first will be last, and the last, the truly noble ones, will be first. Not only those who look noble or speak with noble words, or even those who do great works in the name of the Father. We've seen such wolves in sheep's clothing too many times. We've seen it all over the news this past week, those who have done great things for the Lord, but in reality were hurting and harming people. And so we long for the day when that kind of deception is gone and noble people, truly righteous people are exalted. This is the new society that Jesus is bringing into the world. It's what he has ushered in through his coming and it's what we are called to pursue and it's also our hope. And in light of this coming king, we are called to repent of trusting the fools of our society and rather to trust King Jesus alone. We're called to renounce our trust in ourselves and to trust the righteous king. So, are we living with Christ as king? Are we submitting to his kingly rule with eyes open to his truth and ears open to his wisdom? If we are, then we will listen to and obey his word. And that's what we find in verses 9 through 20. So the third call and the final one is listen to God's word. Why? Because complacency to it brings devastation. While God's spirit leads us into the fruitfulness of obedience. Listen to God's word. Why? Because complacency to God's word, not listening to it, brings devastation. But God's spirit leads us into the fruitfulness of obedience. Look at Isaiah 32. I'll begin in verse 9 and we'll read the rest of this chapter. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken. The populous city is deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This section begins with uh, an indictment against the women of Jerusalem. And the issue with the women of Jerusalem in the first part of this section is a key word. Did you see it? It's complacency. Complacency. Which means it's, they had this belief that nothing would harm them and therefore they needed to do nothing. They didn't have to obey the Lord because no harm was going to come. 
They don't need to hear God's word through Isaiah as true or real, and therefore they think that they can get away with doing nothing and still know God's blessing. We're tempted to that. We think that God will just continue to bless us even if we are complacent to his word and we don't listen. But Isaiah says that a day is coming when they will mourn for the loss of their homes and their crops and their cities because they refused to listen to the Lord and they were complacent. And that complacency in God's people will endure unless God does something. And the thing that he does is found in verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. How is God going to deal with our complacency? He will pour out his spirit on us. Of course, this is the promise that we read about in Jeremiah 31. It's the promise that's fulfilled in Acts 2, also prophesied by Joel, when Jesus on, on the day of Pentecost poured out his very spirit so that we could not, so that we, we could walk in the ways of the kingdom, now empowered and able to do so through faith. The complacency of the, of the rich women in Judah is contrasted with the spirit-indwelt people of God who pursue a righteousness that leads to peace. This new society where the spirit is poured out is one of fruitfulness, verse 15 says. And one of the fruits of the spirit here is righteousness, justice, fairness, the character of our God who is righteous and filled with grace fills the world through his people. And the effect of that righteousness is what? Peace and quietness, security and rest. Consider that chain, okay? You see the chain in verses 15 through 18? The spirit comes and brings fruitfulness and the fruitfulness is seen in righteousness and justice and that justice leads to peace and rest. We've heard a saying in our days recently, not just this day, but many days, where people announce rightly that there is no peace without justice. People say, no justice, no peace. That's a biblical truth. We cannot seek peace at the expense of justice. But we have to go all the way back to the beginning of this chain, don't we? Because we also cannot have justice apart from God's Spirit. God's Spirit, through His people, is His means of bringing righteousness and justice into this world, and therefore bringing peace. So, we as God's people who are indwelt by God's Spirit are called to seek fruitfulness in this world, a fruitfulness that seeks justice and righteousness for all people, especially the weakest, and a righteousness that then leads to true peace in our world. Verses 19 and 20, you can look at those. They reveal that there's a judgment coming, but there's also fruitfulness. And that fruitfulness comes into our lives and our world as we trust the Lord, we repent of our sins, and we obey God's word. And so we come back to the beginning in light of who God is, what he is doing, and what he will do. Those three light bulbs we're trying to light up. Who he is, what he is doing, and what he will do. In light of all of that, we, we can see the blessing of trusting God repenting and obeying, of walking in this way that we know is the right way. But let me close by saying that the description of what God is doing and will do is also the means by which he will do it. What God is doing and what he will do is also the means by which he will do it because 
We can know the right thing to do, but in our sin and on our own, we are unable to do it. We can know that we're supposed to trust the Lord, that we're supposed to repent of our sin, that we're supposed to obey him. But if we try to do it on our own, we will fail. And so if we in our world are going to be changed, what do we need? Chapter 32, verse 1, we need a righteous king. In chapter 32, verse 15, we need the very Spirit of God to work in us, or else we will just continue to run from him and trust ourselves. And so we see Jesus. We see that this is why the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, that Jesus has come as the one righteous man, the righteous king, the perfect Son of God, who was also the true Son of Man, the perfect king who was crucified, buried, and rose again triumphant. And through the power of his spirit poured out on all true believers in that life, death, and resurrection, and through the power of that spirit working through the truth of his word, we are able to see our false refuges and turn from them. We're able to see our trust in ourselves and our trust in others and turn to trust him. And we start to hate that sin and unbelief that we have. And so we turn and we trust Jesus. We trust that he was the perfect one on our behalf, that he died in our place, so that through faith in him we can be saved from God's wrath. But not only saved from God's wrath, but filled with his spirit and enabled by that spirit to bring fruitfulness, righteousness, and peace into this world because of him. So, brothers and sisters, in light of who God is, what he is doing, and what he will do, we can see the blessings of trust and repentance and obedience to his word. And in light of who God is and what he has done through Jesus, we can come to him in repentance and faith. And we can live lives of repentance and faith and obedience. Apart from him, we can't, but in him, we can. We can live these lives of repentance and faith and obedience that glorify the Father and fill us with true joy. And so may we do that. May we do that until King Jesus reigns in fullness and the fruit of the Spirit fills the new kingdom and this world becomes a place full of righteousness and peace and rest. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. Father, rightly has Jesus said that apart from you, we can do nothing. If we are not abiding in you, then we will not trust you. We will not turn from sin. We will not obey your word. So Lord, open our eyes today and throughout this week to who you are, to your powerful protection of us, to your love and your care for us, your gentle care. Open our eyes to what you are doing in our lives now, the way you are protecting and walking with us, the way that you are calling us to, to walk in your ways. And open our eyes to what you will do. Lord, what this earth is going to be when the truly righteous king reigns, what this earth is going to be when your spirit fills all flesh. Let us live in light of that and therefore live lives of complete trust in you, turning from our sin and walking in the ways of blessing you spell out for us so graciously in your word. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.